of warning. Um, here's one that hopefully we don't see too often, <laughs> at least close up, right? Because that means you're going the wrong way. Um, and then we also see, have seen this one, caution wet floor to prevent slipping. And then we also hopefully haven't seen this one too often. Um, rattlesnakes may be found in this area. Give them distance and respect. You got it, Mr. Rattlesnake. And so these are all signs of warning. This passage, in fact, the entire book of Zephaniah is a warning sign as well. But at the same time, it's a sign of warning. It also offers great hope if it is heeded. And so the primary purpose of this book is that God will judge his people. And the reason why he judges his people, according to Zephaniah, is primarily because of idolatry. Micah had a different reason. It was because of the oppression of the powerful over the weak. But God's people, even, can be deceived into having a prideful attitude. And so Zephaniah deals with that issue head-on today in this passage in the second chapter. Leaders, we learned last week, will be judged harshly because they could have prevented the calamity of the nation. And we also learned last week that God's judgment will be extensive and also quite diverse. In fact, we learned that believers will be judged because Jesus said this to us in Matthew chapter 6, not as a suggestion, but as a command, as an imperative. And he said this in Matthew 6, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. And so we learned last week that while there are quite a few different types of judgments in different periods of time, there is one for believers that we will be judged shortly after the rapture. We will be judged at the judgment seat of Christ or the Bema or Bema seat judgment. And that's where believers will be judged, not regarding our salvation, because just by our presence there, just by our ability to be invited and show up there, that means that, we're automatic, that we are saved. Because only saved people will be judged and evaluated at the judgment seat of Christ. So there are different types of judgments. There are different groups of judgments, and there are different periods or times of judgments. And so judgment is quite diverse in Scripture. It's not just the great white throne judgment that we tend to think about but that groups and nations will be judged even in this existence as well. And that's the primary object of what Zephaniah is referring to, specifically the impending judgment of the southern kingdom of Judah, Israel to the north, Judah to the south. There are many different types of judgment, but Zephaniah also communicates some good news, that it's not all a beatdown, it's also a build-up, even in one of the minor epistles, which has the same theme over and over again, showing different aspects of judgment. And so Zephaniah provides a way of escape. How to prevent disaster for the southern kingdom of Judah? How is this possible? What hope do we have? What do we have to do in order to escape calamity? So look at the first three verses of Zephaniah chapter 2. He writes this. Gather together, gather together, O shameful nation, before the appointed time arrives, and that day sweeps on like chaff. Before the fierce anger of the Lord comes upon you, before the day of the Lord's wrath comes upon you, 
Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, you who do what he commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you will be sheltered on the day of the Lord's anger. And so what does he tell Judah to do? What does he tell this southern half of the nation of Israel to do in order to avoid disaster? He says, okay, this is not an individual thing. You guys all need to gather together and have national repentance. You need to change your mind about what you've been doing, about the false gods of foreign nations that you've been worshiping. You need to repent of that. You need to change your mind. But here it is, packaged very tightly and succinctly for the listener. You need to do three things before the time of God's judgment arrives. In fact, he says the word before two times in verse 3. Before it comes, because it's just around the corner, you guys need to make some adjustments, to put it lightly. You need to change some things. You need to do three things. First, you need to seek the Lord. Not just enjoy and seek after His benefits, His blessings, and His gifts. Those are there. But don't just seek what He does for you. Seek Him. Know Him. Because He is a God who is knowable and wants to be known. He's not like the God of the Muslims, Allah, who is only supposedly transcendent. But He is the God of Scripture. He is Yahweh. He is transcendent and separated from from creation, not dependent upon it, but he's also imminent. He's also close by as well. So he's a God who wants to know you. And so you can know him. And so know Christ better. Know him better. Not just his benefits and his blessings, not just his rituals, but seek the Lord. God's word tells us that the Lord is a rewarder to those who diligently seek after him. And so he's a rewarder for those who want to know him want to walk and abide with him. But secondly, seek after righteousness. And so, since you're getting to know him better, since you're seeking after him, his righteousness will come to you. You will um, be marinated in his righteousness. And so, there will be change in your life. You actually now have the capacity to change since you're seeking after him and knowing him, and he's going to change you from the inside out. He accepts you as you are, but he doesn't leave you there. He changes you, assuming you're cooperating with that process of sanctification. And so seek after righteousness. Be holy. Be different. Be distinct. Be moral. Be good. And now finally you have that capacity for change because you are no longer controlled by sin unless you allow yourself to be controlled by a fallen strategy of sin, whether it be jealousy, whether it be pride, whether it be anger, whether it be lying, whatever it might be. You don't have to do that anymore. And so you can become righteous, even in this life, not perfectly righteous, but you can become more sanctified and holier, especially as you interact with him. The third thing that we're commanded to do here is to seek humility. So seek the Lord, seek his righteousness, and then seek humility. Be unpretentious. A couple thing, a few things about humility. First of all, humility is not thinking less of yourself, but it's thinking of yourself less often. So humility is not low self-esteem. It's not saying, oh, I'm such an idiot. I'm such a, such a loser. That's, 
That's not humility. In fact, that's reverse pride because you're still focusing on yourself. Secondly, God despises our self-sufficiency. Why does he despise it so much? Why does he speak against it? Why do his mouthpieces, the prophets and the apostles, rail against human self-sufficiency? Why did Babylon fail? Why do these things not work out? Well, because they don't reflect reality, that's why. And so God is giving us a wake-up call that we are not independent, but we are desperately dependent upon him and also interdependent with one another. Our sincere humility, has it actually has an effect on God. It's got to be sincere. I heard an illustration one time, I'll never forget it, about, about humility. Humility is kind of like trying to hold a wet watermelon seed in your fingers. Because <laughs> once you think you got it, you don't. So to say, uh, I am the most humble man in the world, you know, is definitely not humility. You don't have it if you say or think something like that. But he despises our self-sufficiency. Our sincere humility has an effect upon God. First Peter 5 tells us that God opposes the proud. Well, because they see their strengths and they have a self-sufficient odor to them. God gives grace to the humble. And so we can actually see God as predictable when we voluntarily and proactively humble ourselves and have the proper attitude before God, that he lifts us up, that he gives grace to the humble. It's a promise. Thirdly, humility is something, humiliation is something that is imposed, but humility is a choice. Let me say that again. Humiliation is imposed upon people, but Humility is a choice. It's pretty obvious. Haman, in the book of Esther, was humiliated, and no one purposely humiliates himself. And there's nothing good in humiliation in and of itself. But there's great value in proactively and voluntarily humbling ourselves before God. Mordecai is a good poster child of humility. And so, humble yourself before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Fourthly, the way to greatness and dignity is through humility. Someone said that the only way to ascend is to descend. Do you wish to become great? Then let yourself be little. Do you wish to rise? Then let yourself sink. Do you wish to rule? Then you'd better serve. In fact, in the kingdom of God, that is part and parcel of what leadership is all about. So that's why deacons, the translation of diakonos is servant. And so Jesus turned everything right side up when it comes to leadership when he came to lead us to salvation and followership of him. And so the way to greatness and dignity is through humility and not through humiliation. But he just says an interesting thing here in verse, uh, the last part of verse 3. He says, if you do these things, if you seek the Lord, if you seek righteousness, if you seek humility, then perhaps you will be sheltered on the day of the Lord's anger. And he uses a wordplay here in the Hebrew because if you remember what the word Zephaniah means, his very name means those who are sheltered by God. So he's basically saying here that if you do these things, 
you have the proper attitude, you'll be Zephaniah. <laughs> you'll be sheltered by the Lord. You'll be protected by God. And as it pertains to the southern kingdom of Judah, that actually took place because God is so gracious that there, were, there was a remnant. There were some people who did humble themselves before God, and they were not killed. They were not devastated by God's agent of judgment, which in this case was Babylon. The northern kingdom had already fallen when Zephaniah writes, and devastation for the southern kingdom was just around the corner. And so there were some who were saved. It says, in fact, um, Nebuchadnezzar is he carried all Jerusalem into exile, all the officers and fighting men and all the skilled workers and artisans, a total of 10,000. Only the poorest people of the land were left. Nebuchadnezzar took Jehoiachin captive to Babylon. He also took from Jerusalem to Babylon the king's mother, his wives, his officials, and the prominent people of the land. The king of Babylon also deported to Babylon the entire force of 7,000 fighting men, strong and fit for war, and 1,000 skilled workers and artisans. They were taken into captive captivity, but they were at least saved. And some even remained in the land. And then 70 years later, when Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah came back, those people were still there, and he used them to help rebuild the walls and ultimately rebuild the temple. So what do you do with this? What, um, what do I do with this ancient literature, 2,700-year-old stuff? How do I respond to it? Well, it certainly directly speaks to the situation in Judah around 700 years before the time of Christ. But it also applies to us here in Keller, Texas, 2024. Judgment can be avoided by seeking the Lord and his righteousness as well as having a humble attitude. You see, the change that the writer is looking for here is not so much a change of knowledge, you don't really need to know a lot in order to make yourself humble before God. In fact, sometimes knowledge puffs up, and it actually fights against your desire to become humble before the Lord. So he's not actually trying to add information on, although there's lots of content here, certainly. He's also not specifically looking primarily for a behavioral change, but what he is looking for is an attitudinal change. See, God's Word is either trying to teach us content, looking for a behavioral change, or a change of attitude. That's what Zephaniah is looking for here from his primary target audience, which would be the people of Judah. But then fast forwards 2,700 years later to our day and age, it still fits really well. Humble yourself before the Lord, and He will lift you up. But the necessary prerequisite is to have a change of attitude. So walk humble, being attentive and careful to not our personal agendas, but rather being careful and attentive to the will of God. Submit yourself to the way God wants to do it. Don't be so full of yourself, but rather be full of God. This is the way to avoid destruction, um, to avoid the natural consequences even here, now, in our day and age. The formula still fits, so put it on. Lest God be accused of picking on Israel and Judah, he wants us to know that not only will he judge his own people, but since he created not just the people of Israel and the people of Judah, but the peoples of all nations, tribes, and tongues, that everyone will be subject to a 
type of judgment at some future point in time. And so he purposefully picks out four nations that surround Israel. He picks out Philistia to the west. He picks out Moab and Ammon to the east. Ethiopia or Cush to the south. And Assyria to the north. He picks out nations representing each point of the compass. Look what verses 4 through 7 tell us in the text. It says here, Gaza will be abandoned and Ashkelon left in ruins. At midday, Ashdod will be emptied and Ekron uprooted, four of the five cities of Philistia, or the Philistines. Woe to you who live by the sea, O Carathite people. The word of the Lord is against you. O Canaan, land of the Philistines, I will destroy you and none will be left. The land by the sea where the Carathites dwell will be a place for shepherds and sheep pens. It will belong to the remnant of the house of Judah. There they will find pasture. In the evening they will lie down in the houses of Ashkelon. The Lord their God will care for them. He will restore their fortunes. And so Zephaniah mentions four of the five cities of the Philistines as eventual objects of God's judgment. The Philistines, you know, lived on the coast. Some commentators say that their place of origin was the island of Crete to the west of the land of Palestine or Israel. Um, The word for Philistine actually means emigrant. It means a migrant, someone who came from somewhere else. So the Philistines are not native or indigenous peoples of Canaan. How about that? The word that is recognizable here to us, especially since October 7th, is the name of Gaza, which is, in the biblical sense, not a region or a province as it is known today, or the Gaza Strip, but it was actually a city. The word is Gaza. Zephaniah tells us that that land will be destroyed. Not only will it be destroyed, but it will be given to the people of Judah. And they will use it for pasture lands, and they will prosper in it at a future point in time. The land of the Philistines was destroyed. It was destroyed from the context of Zephaniah when he wrote. Just a few years after he wrote it, this prophecy initially came true by Pharaoh Necro of the Egyptians. They marched up there and they destroyed the place. Was that the ultimate fulfillment of Zephaniah chapter 2? No. Because if you remember from our study of the book of Revelation last year, that I hold to a theory called the dress rehearsal theory, where it seems like, and we've seen several examples of this in Joel, Micah, and now in the book of Zephaniah, that it seems like God's prophecies are sometimes partially fulfilled several times before they are ultimately fulfilled. And I believe that this is a good example of this. Because just a few years after Zephaniah penned these words, this prophecy did come true. But it will ultimately be fulfilled at a future point in time in the tribulation period in preparation for Israel to possess that land in the millennial kingdom. And we'll see another example of this partial fulfillment as well of another prophecy later on in the passage. And so 
we've seen the area be leveled again even in our day and age. And so is this a, a, second, a second fulfillment of this prophecy? And actually Israel occupying some of that land. Um, but of course, this will be ultimately fulfilled in the millennial kingdom. And so in chapter 2, verses 8 through 11, two other countries are noted also and warned against judgment. Look what verse 8 and through 11 tell us. It says, I have heard the insults of Moab and the taunts of the Ammonites who insulted my people and made threats against their land. Therefore, as surely as I live, declares the Lord, the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, surely Moab will become like Sodom and the Ammonites like Gomorrah, a place of weeds and salt pits, a wasteland forever. The remnant of my people will plunder them. The survivors of my nation will inherit their land. This is what they will get in return for their pride, for insulting and mocking the people of the Lord Almighty. The Lord will be awesome to them when he destroys all the gods of the land. The nations on every shore will worship him, everyone in its own land. And so Moab and Ammon, two nations to the east of Israel, their destruction will come one day too. Moab and Ammon came from Lot with his daughters, from his union with his daughters. These nations threatened and insulted God's people. There was frequent warfare between Israel and the nation of Ammon or Moab. King Balak wanted Balaam to curse Israel. During the time of the judges, there was constant warfare between Israel and these two nations. David and Saul ultimately defeated them. But what does Zephaniah say? They will become like, they'll become like Sodom and Gomorrah. Who did Lot flee from? Lot fled from Sodom and Gomorrah. So there's like a cyclical thing going on here. He came and fled from Sodom and Gomorrah, went to those nations, populated it with his offspring, but then ultimately Moab and Ammon will become devastated. It will become a wasteland, just like Sodom and Gomorrah exist even to this day. The false gods will be destroyed. This is accomplished by destroying the nations who worship those false gods. And you might say, oh, that's just so mean of God. He's, he appears to be a God of such violence and hatred, and you hear that proclaimed against Yahweh these days as well. But if you take into account the despicable worship practices of these gods, temple prostitution, and also child sacrifice. When those nations that worship these false gods are destroyed, those horrendous, horrific, despicable, repugnant worship practices will also finally cease. And so the cessation of the worship of those gods will actually be a very good thing for all of humanity. There's a brief mention of Ethiopia here, switching maps to pull out a little bit because Ethiopia is called Cush in the Bible. And down here, verse 12, very brief mention, it says, You too, O Cushites, will be slain by the sword. And then Zephaniah jumps to the last nation, which is the nation to the north called 
Assyria, represented by its capital city, the citadel of Nineveh. Look what verses 13 through 15 say. It says, He will stretch out his hand against the north and destroy Assyria, leaving Nineveh utterly desolate and dry as the desert. Flocks and herds will lie down there, creatures of every kind. The desert owl and the screech owl will roost on her columns. Their calls will echo through the windows. Rubble will be in the doorways. The beams of cedar will be exposed. This is the carefree city that lived in safety. She said to herself, I am, and there is none besides me. What a ruin she has become, a lair for wild beasts. All who pass by her scoff and shake their fists. And so this is the destiny of the nation of Assyria, but specifically the capital city of Nineveh, a city that had a very big population for this day, 700 years before Christ, a population of 120,000 people. And it was truly a fortress. It was uh, surrounded by concentric circles of walls. It was a really difficult place to penetrate, but ultimately it was conquered by the Babylonians and the Medes. And they took it. And the city was devastated. A few years ago there was a TV show on History Channel called Life After People. I don't know if any of you have seen that. And um, basically what they say is, oh, they speculate, what, what happens to all of the infrastructure that mankind has built? Uh, what happens to nature? What happens to this or that? If all the people left and weren't here to take care of it. And so one of their speculations is, what happens to the skyscrapers of, the, of our big cities? And so, the, so they, they speculate that they will, all the windows will ultimately break out and vines and trees will grow up in them and it will be inhabited by thousands and thousands of cats. <laughs> So all you cat lovers, you know, you just like wait for that day. But that's really what's being described here of Nineveh. It's like it's become a habitat of wild animals and wild beasts where there was once this huge bustling city, this strong citadel, this fortress. It will be ruined and animals will live there. And what happened? Well, just a few years after Zephaniah penned these words, again, Dress rehearsal theory, it fell to Babylon just a few years after Zephaniah wrote this, but it will fall again. It will fall again at a future time. So what do we do with this? Well, you could say that the judgment of God will be announced. It will be announced thousands and thousands and thousands of times from many different mouths, from many different pens, there will be more than sufficient warning for all of humanity of what will take place. It will be announced. It will be extensive. It will cover every nation, tongue, and tribe. And it will also be a judgment of justice. It will be evenly applied. God's justice will be just. Why? Well, because he created us, and so he owns us, and therefore he can judge us. But he also has shown his side of love and mercy because he provides a way out for us, a way of escape, an exit ramp. And our turning to a soft, receptive heart is difficult, but absolutely essential work for every human being. Our pride is so powerful. Even those... Even those serving the Antichrist in the final days 
of the tribulation. As they experience the direct judgment of God through the seal, trumpet, and bowl judgments, even they, with their pride so powerful, will not relent. In fact, in Revelation chapter 16, the, just right before the battles of Armageddon will take place, and God's judgment has been pouring out upon the face of the earth, the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom, this nation, this powerful empire that the Antichrist will, will run all to his glory, was plunged into darkness. You might say, man, those people really must have started repenting big time. Nope. They actually grew more arrogant and prideful and resistant against God, even in real time of their judgment. People gnawed their tongues in agony and cursed the God. So even as they were gnawing their own tongues, because their pain was so powerful, they still had enough energy. They still formed the words of cursing the one true God because they hated and despised Him so much. People gnawed their tongues in agony and cursed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, but they refused to repent of what they had done. That's the power of pride inside of a human being. You and I are also vulnerable to that pride, even as believers. And that's because the writers of the New Testament, as well as the Old, time and time again warn us against pride. And if it were not a possibility in the life of a believer, of a believer they wouldn't have had to warn us. But this is something that we have to do maintenance on. It's a change of attitude continually, every day, because we need that course correction that slowly we could drift toward a self-centered and prideful attitude. We have to fight and battle against it through the power of the Spirit. We're vulnerable to pride as believers. But humility is absolutely necessary to see ourselves as accurately needy, that we were born into this world Far apart from the living God, there was no relationship. It is absolutely essential that we be reconciled back to God. What hope is there? Uh, what salvation is available to us? How can we keep living? How can we survive? How can we thrive? Ephesians 2.8 tells us that it is by grace... By grace that you have been saved. That grace, a good acronym of the word grace, is God's riches at Christ's expense. To us, being reconnected, reconciled, saved, justified, redeemed, whatever word you want to use, our reconnection back to God, from our perspective, is an absolute, unmitigated, free gift. But it's a very, very expensive gift for Jesus because he's the one who was separated from his father for three days as he painfully, in an agonizing death, processed, expedited, paid for the sins of the world, sins that were past from his time perspective, present, and also future tense. As I said before, some sociologists have calculated that up to this point in human history, there have been 105 billion people who have lived. He paid 
for the sins of all of them. But the salvation, the grace, is not applied to those people until they express faith. Because Paul goes on to say, for it is by grace you have been saved through what? Faith. Dependency. Trust. Reliance in someone else. And then I love Ephesians 2, 8, 9, because it doesn't just say how we're reconnected to the one true God, how we're forgiven, how we're saved, how we receive righteousness, but it also tells us how we're not saved. It makes it perfectly clear. It tells us how we are saved, but it also reminds us a couple times how we're not saved. It says, for it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is, I'm going to repeat it, Paul's probably thinking as he writes this, it is a gift of God, not by works, and I'm going to say it again, so that no one can boast. can't say, oh, I've saved myself, I've taken care of it myself, I've provided even 10% of my salvation. No, it is 0%. And thanks be to God that it is that way. Because if our salvation is based upon our character and our performance, there's no way in the world that you could possibly call it good news. Because we'd lose it in five minutes. But because it's all the work of Jesus Christ, it, is, it has the foundation of the strongest rock. He is our rock. He is our fortress. And so therefore it's based upon His work and His character. Our sanctification, our discipleship is based upon our attitudes, on our performance, and so that's why it's up and down all the time. But the more we proactively depend upon the Spirit, the third person of the Godhead, we will have the power to do things that are right. And so you and I are vulnerable to pride even as believers. But for non-believers, for those who haven't believed yet, who haven't placed their faith in Christ yet, it requires an attitude of humility in that we have to know that we're sinners so that way we can know how to be saved. So all of us come into this world far apart from God, but we can get reconnected to him when we realize that it is by grace, by a free gift, that you have been saved through faith. And so transfer your trust, your faith, your belief from something else, a ritualistic religion, or just the idea of like being a basically good person, good person. Or maybe it's from nothing. I've never thought about spiritual things until I was invited to come here today. Transfer your trust from those things to one person, and his name is Jesus Christ. Understand the gospel that Jesus died in your place. He died for you. Realize that it applies to you, and then trust in him. And you will be born again. Not something that you feel inside. It's just a fact that you then, for the first time in your existence, have been ignited with life. So now you actually have a life to live for him. Before, you didn't have a life. So it's not giving Jesus your life, but rather it's actually gaining life, a spiritual life, through trust in Jesus. Non-believers are embedded naturally in pride. Humble yourself before the Lord, and he will lift you up when you place your faith in Christ. Believers are also vulnerable to pride, and that's something that we have to work on. Like I would recommend every day, humbling yourself before the Lord. The very act of prayer is a humble process. We complain sometimes, oh, why do I pray? Well, because 
I want to change a person or I want to change a situation. But half the time, God doesn't change it. But you know what changes 100% of the time when we pray? We do. It's an act of contrition before God. It's humbling ourselves before him. So pray every day. Proactively humble yourself every day. And he will protect you. He will watch over you. And you will abide with him. And you will gain his benefits, the benefits of knowing Christ and making him known. Let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this reminder, this call to a change of attitude. I pray, Father, that all of us, including myself, will desire to humble ourselves before you on a regular basis so we will not You'd help us to do this on a consistent basis. For those of us who have never trusted in Jesus Christ, I pray that we would do that like right now. We would trust in him. We transfer our trust to Jesus and his work. And in doing so, we will have eternal life. We praise you for that, Lord. Thank you for providing an exit ramp to pride and self-centeredness and self-sufficiency. Thank you for um, humbling us sometimes because we need it. So, Father, thank you. We love you. And thank you for loving us. In your son's name we pray. Amen.